0: Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi.
1: And I'm Sarah Jacobs.
0: On Saturday in Paris, the artist Christo and his wife Jean-Claude, who are actually now deceased, opened their last big uh, art installation courtesy of their nephew. Uh, they wrapped the Arc de Triomphe in material, which is kind of Christo's signature look. And, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with their work, they are artists who create mammoth, site-specific environmental art. Uh, Kristo was actually born in Bulgaria during the totalitarian regime of the Communist Party in the 50s. He sought political asylum in Vienna, and he eventually made his way to New York City, where he lived for 56 years, and he gained U.S. citizenship in the process. I became familiar with their work in 2005 because they erected... 7,503 orange gates in Central Park. But they've been doing similar grand art since the 1970s, including covering the Pont Neuf in Paris, covering the Reichstag in Berlin. Uh, And the one that I wish I could have seen was the floating piers, where they installed floating walkways covered with fabric on Lake Iseo in Italy. Now, the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because all of these exhibitions are and were temporary. So, Arc de Triomphe is only open until October 3rd. And once they come down, the materials are recycled or discarded, and the landscapes are restored. So, the only evidence that the art existed is through sketches, planning documents, and relative to what we talk about on the show, photography of the installation as it lived during its brief uh, uh, lifetime. So the question that I pose to you, dear listener, and to you, Sarah, Mm -hmm. is what role does photography play in ephemeral art? Because Mm. not everybody can see these installations, uh, especially now with, uh, you know, COVID travel restrictions uh, and whatnot. Uh, And and for the Italy piece uh, that he did uh, a few years ago. You couldn't even get plane tickets. You couldn't get a ticket to, to, to get on the, the installation on the floating piers. So, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now, all we have are these photos. Hmm. What's your take on that?
1: (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't think that the photos um, will ever capture exactly what it might feel like to stand in front of this beautiful artwork or to live in in Paris and be able to see this every day and then to see this drastic change where this artwork has changed literally changed the landscape of their everyday life so I do think while photos can just help document you know what what went down and what happened and what it looked like you know there you cannot replace that that experience of having actually been there.
0: So, in the New York Times piece that was uh, announcing the the opening of this piece of art, which has been sixty years in the making, apparently, uh, you know, Christo had conceptualized this sixty years ago, and it's finally gone through all the regulatory approvals um, and and being mounted posthumously. Um, but they did have a time lapse sequence of workmen repelling down the arc and draping the material, and I thought, you know, there's something theatrical about. Christo's artwork, and there was something very theatrical about seeing it unfurl in a lot of ways. Uh, I think in a way that some of the much larger pieces, you can't have that same sort of feeling of like, the curtains are coming down. Um, and it really made me think, like, in a sense, the, the unfurling of that material is part of the, quote, performance, and the photography or videography that captures it um, is capturing it in a way that most visitors won't see so Mm. in that sense it becomes almost a bit of the art itself
1: yeah i mean a a little bit i think we differ on that opinion slightly (laughs) i (laughs) i do feel like this might be one of the first like time lapses that was taken of the installation Mm -hmm. of his work no right
0: i think so one of yeah
1: and immediately i'm thinking like uh could that be like an nft or something <laughs> so
0: it's not some- it's not a crazy idea because that thought did cross my mind uh you know nfts of course non-fungible tokens you don't own the underlying art when you purchase the nft for the art you just own the record of this digital creation and it sits in the blockchain somewhere So, yeah, I mean, that could be sold as an NFT. It could fund the foundation for future artwork that presumably his nephew could take over. I assume there's a whole vault full of art projects waiting to be executed. Mm. The thing that I thought of, you know, in terms of the sketches and the photos are the only proof of the art in some ways, which is a large contrast to most of the fine art world where you're paying hundreds of million dollars for a Picasso or whatnot, and I, I remember the mysterious street artist, Banksy, who auctioned a piece of art in 2018 for $1.4 million, which upon being sold, when the gavel hit, boom, it started to shred itself to the horror of the audience. He had, Banksy had built in a paper shredder into the frame that was sort of hidden. But the shredder got jammed like halfway through. So you see shredded art, but you can still see, you know, a third of the art or a fifth of the art, original art in the frame. That piece of art just sold again for 8 million dollars 3 years later. Oh, wow. So Banksy tried to create ephemeral art, but it ended up skyrocketing in value. It's kind of a <laughs> weird I, you know, It goes back to this whole notion of, of what, what do we value? How do we value it? Apparently, we don't actually need a physical representation to value it. Or sometimes we do. Or sometimes when it's a partial representation, it increases in price.
1: Mm. Yeah. And something like that, I almost consider that performance art, right? Like the moment that it started shredding Absolutely. and yeah. they were watching a show. And, and it's kind of similar to Christo's artwork where even just witnessing watching it be installed is part of the artwork um, and part of part of a show part of a performance
0: I think that's totally legitimate you know the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei had a series of photos where he's smashing uh, invaluable Ming vases and so you see the you know he's dropping it and then the photo is of that vase maybe you know a foot from the ground before it smashes and I I can't remember exactly what the thesis was, but something about, you know, value. And, but in a sense, the record, I mean, what, what is the art? Is it the act of smashing the vase or is it the photo of him smashing the vase? Mm. Questions See, to ponder.
1: I know. I, I think I'm on the side of him smashing the vase as the art and the photo is documenting mm. that, that performance art.
0: Uh, well, <laughs> if you're lucky enough to go see, uh, the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, go see it. Because when I saw the, uh, the gates in 2005, uh, you know, it's not the individual gate that is compelling. It's when you look across the landscape and you're like, holy smoke, I can't believe that somebody conceptualized this and built it. It, it is a treat to see, uh, Christo's art.
1: Michelle V. Agens is now one of the longest-serving staff photographers at the New York Times. She started in 1989, and she was the second black female photographer to join the Times. Um, Her body of work is being honored at this year's Photoville Festival, which just launched this past weekend, September 18th, in New York. Um, She has documented everything from, you know, the everyday life of New York City to her series on WNBA players to mayoral runs to much deeper reporting about very specific neighborhoods in the city, including her series about neighborhood life in Harlem, which she described, quote, I had to hang out in order for the folks in the community to accept me and to start getting used to me. Her portfolio is phenomenal. It's worth taking a look at. And I can't wait to see it out at Photoville.
0: I thought that quote was really interesting because you assume, well, black female photographer going into Harlem. No problem. Mm. But there's that sort of of same distrust with any outsider coming in, regardless of their skin color and regardless of any shared cultural experiences. It, It shows you, you know, for photojournalists in particular, if you want to sort of penetrate a community, you've got to put the time in. Uh, Mm -hmm. Our good friend Robert Kaplan, who uh, for many years ran the photo brigade, actually interviewed Michelle a few years ago. Uh, We'll have a link to that video on our blog uh, on blog.photoshelter.com. But it's super interesting hearing sort of the first person stories uh, of her being an up and coming female black photographer uh, in Chicago in the 80s. You know, she was a copy girl at uh, one of the newspapers and she was taking pictures that were being published in the paper, and staff photographers complained. And the editor then asked these photographers, you know, mostly white male photographers, well, who of you want to go into her neighborhood to, to photograph these stories? And no one volunteered, because of course, they're like, oh, we don't want to go into the hood. Uh, so she actually ended up becoming a photo intern rather than a copy girl, because he said, oh, well, you know, copy girls can't take photos, so they made her a photo intern instead. And that kind of started her professional uh, photo career. She served as Mayor Harold Washington's photographer uh, in Chicago. She covered uh, the 88 Democratic Convention for the Charlotte Observer and ran into the staff photographer Jim Wilson from The New York Times. And it was Jim who went back to The Times and suggested her name as a potential staffer. She was subsequently invited to the New York Times cocktail party at the National Association of Black Journalists Conference, and she talked to Carolyn Lee, who's a picture editor at the paper, and they eventually invited her to come up to New York to interview and uh, give her a job offer and when the HR people were talking to her, she said, you, you all know that I'm African-American, right? Before she came up. And they're like, yeah, wow. yeah, we know. So it was still this time where there's, you know, uh, you, you know, you don't want to be surprised to walk in the door and people are like, oh my God, we didn't realize she was black. Um, she tells a very funny story in this interview with Robert. And she says the New York Times organized a dinner to meet all the photo editors because there were too many photo editors for her to sort of meet one-on-one. And before she went to this dinner, Her godmother told her, quote, don't drink with the people who are going to hire you. I want you to just ask for a Perrier and Lime. That's classy. Ooh, good advice, (laughs) Grandma. I mean, that's great advice for what's ostensibly a job interview. And she says in this interview, she says, finally, Mr. Bissell came up to me. He was my big boss. And he said, "Uh, Michelle, I know you're a Buddhist, uh, but do you drink? And she explains to Mr. Bissell that her godmother said not to drink there. And he said, you know, she says, no, I drink. I, you know, you got to drink to be a journalist. Um, <laughs> and after she, you know, said, of course I drink, he said, oh, well, good. And as soon as he did, he went, you know, gesturing with his, with his hand to everyone else. It's okay. And everybody <laughs> ran to the bar to get alcohol. They were holding out because of her, because they saw her not drinking. So it's just funny to see you know the the career progression that she had and of course like many of us we have all these funny little anecdotes from from when we were uh, kind of making our way in the world uh but like you said man the photos across this very long career are amazing
1: yeah they really are the times has been Lucky to have her, and I'm glad that she's stayed with them for so long as she's developed an amazing body of work.
0: Photoville is open at the Brooklyn Bridge Park uh, now until early December. So get down there if in New York City all the exhibits are free and there's some fantastic photography as usual.
1: The Wall Street Journal has published a series of pretty damning reports involving Facebook. It is called, the the body of reports is called the Facebook Files. And there's one particular article that originally caught my eye because of the opening shot taken by photojournalist Hannah Yoon. Um, it is a double exposure portrait of a teen girl. Um, there's a lot of emotion in the image. And then the headline paired with it really just drives it home. The headline is Facebook knows Instagram is toxic for teen girls, company documents show
0: it was one of several pieces in this series uh, and it was the only one as I was browsing through the other pieces that the the journal commissioned photography for Mm. so Hannah has that opening portrait in a number of uh, photos within the piece and there's also photos by uh, the photojournalist Leanne Milton and Talia Herman this piece was fascinating to me not only because I thought the photography was great But because we talk a lot about the intersection of society and photography, and I think we all sort of personally know and anecdotally know um, the downsides of social media, but to see Facebook research sort of corroborate how destructive it can be. uh, So here's some of the quotes uh, from the piece. 32% of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. Teens blame Instagram for increases in rates of anxiety and depression, said another slide. This reaction was unprompted and consistent across all groups. Among teens who reported suicidal thoughts, 13% of British users and 6% of American users traced their desire to kill themselves to Instagram, one presentation showed. They came to the conclusion that some of the problems were specific to Instagram and not social media more broadly. This is especially true concerning so-called social comparison, which is when people assess their own value in relation to the attractiveness, wealth, and success of others. This, I thought this was fascinating that it was Instagram-specific. Mm-hmm. And they mentioned that the social comparison is worse on Instagram because of just sort of the, the nature and the personality of that platform. Um, they noted that on TikTok, the short video app is grounded in performance, while users on Snapchat are sheltered by jokey filters that keep the focus on the face. But by contrast, Instagram focuses heavily on body and lifestyle. And, you know, I will say from my own experience using it, there is a lot of, you know, FOMO-inducing. The way that people curate their own content and the way that the algorithm, when you hit that magnifying glass to search for other stuff, the way that the algorithm sort of feeds you uh, you know, these perfect bodies, these models, these places that that you can't travel to right now or, or can never go to. Uh, I can see how it can be very destructive.
1: Sure. I mean, this is exposing, you know, how Instagram is aware that it's affecting specifically teenage girls. But I think that that is only a slice of the terrible pie that is actually going yeah. on. You know what I mean?
0: The reporting really made me think about the power of a curated set of images. You know, we've talked about individual images, particularly in the photojournalism realm. And I've come to the conclusion that nowadays with the inundation of images, it's, it's almost impossible for a single image to change people's opinions. You know, we talked about the drowning kid in Greece a few years ago. We talked about the crying baby at the Mexican U.S. border and how we thought that these would be photos that really changed the mood and the political direction uh, and support for immigrants. And none of that really ever came to be for a a number of reasons. Um, But my personal takeaway was like a single image can't move the needle at all. But now we're seeing with Instagram, with the algorithm, how a set of, you know, quote, curated images can significantly shape and or distort a viewer's perception and this kind of made me think about why newspapers then don't show more pictures of people dying from covid or war and i know there are you know sensitive reasons why we don't show you know victims of war and you know killed you know dead bodies on the on the front page but it also the the, the counterpoint of that discussion is that we're sanitizing the news to the point where people's perception of reality Is really distorted through a specific lens because of these Mm -hmm. norms that we have, at least in in U.S. publications.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I I think that whole idea of being flooded with, you know, this repetitive kind of like the same images over and over again, very curated um, sets of images they they do begin, it clearly they do be, begin to affect you. But I think this sense of perception, it's so easy to shift when it's about yourself and you're turning it very inward, which is exactly what Instagram and all these social media apps are doing. You know, it's not about necessarily about the world um, or what's yeah. going on outside of your own home. It's about what the reflection that you're seeing in the in your iPhone, you know, of yourself. Um, And that's a very easy thing to feel bad about and to be manipulated over.
0: So Senator Richard Blumenthal uh, from Connecticut compared Facebook to big tobacco uh, Mm. in that they have this research so they know how harmful it, it is. They suppress a lot of this research, you know, they're not sharing data with academics. Then they try to make it more addicting, right, through the algorithm. And then they spend billions in advertising to promote the product. And so there is more of a sustained call for regulation uh, of social media entities. And of course, Facebook is arguably the largest with Facebook and Instagram and all the other tentacles that they have uh, into the world.
1: Back in May, Instagram head Adam Mosseri told reporters that research he had seen suggests the app's effects on teens Being likely, quote, quite small. Well, we now know that he had seen research proving otherwise done by his very own team. Um, And in a more recent interview, Mossari said, quote, In no way do I mean to diminish these issues. Some of these issues mentioned in this story aren't necessarily widespread, but their impact on people may be huge. Okay, so he's acknowledging it. But ultimately, I do think this story is pretty damning, uh, on Mossari, and honestly, rightfully so. They talk about how Instagram got rid of likes. Um, it's an option for some of the users to get rid of likes, even though their research showed that it really wouldn't move the needle in terms of how people might feel about themselves when they're scrolling on the app, but they did it kind of, you know, as a facade of like, we are helping this issue. Here's one thing that we're doing.
0: Yeah. Facebook actually published a response to the Wall Street Journal reporting uh, in a piece titled, What the Wall Street Journal Got Wrong. Uh, they do acknowledge that they have research indicating that some of this stuff is uh, harmful. They sort of disputed that they aren't really doing anything about it or that they're trying to suppress all of the information. Uh, I read I read some of that, and it seemed a lot of like corporate spin. But sure. We'll have that link yeah. for you as well on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. <laughs>
1: I mean, it does make me question kind of you know it being compared to big tobacco, it does make me question, is using Instagram does it need to be kind of this moral choice, knowing that we are helping you know this business that can really mentally affect um, young people?
0: yeah, it's funny, right before we taped, I was looking at my Instagram feed because I'm addicted. And uh, I came across a post (laughs) from the director, Karen X. Chang. Uh, If you've followed her for the past few years, her first big viral thing was how she learned to dance in 100 days. Um, And in this particular post, uh, she's paired up with Adobe uh, to show how she got to a million followers. And she says that Instagram is the new resume. Which I thought was pretty fascinating. I think for visual creators, whether you're a director or videographer, you know, or even like a, a performer in a lot of ways, it, it is like a resume. I, I don't know that it is the most succinct version of your resume in the way that like a CV can be more heavily curated, but it's sort of regular proof of life and visual proof of what you do. So it'll be interesting to see the reaction to her post.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do wonder when that shift sort of happened that non-visual and non-artist people started putting their jobs in their profiles. Yeah. Like I can understand like entrepreneurs doing it, but You know, I I just I see the most like random job titles and it's like I'm curious why some people feel that they need to put that within their Instagram profile, I guess, to confirm who they are. Yes, I agree that it kind of has become the new resume for not even just visual artists.
0: Uh, I will not be posting my resume on on Instagram so (laughs) (laughs) you can find my business accomplishments on LinkedIn like uh, most normal older people. Uh, like an I will, adult. Yeah, I will continue to post uh, food photos and <laughs> some travel photos and surf photos on my Instagram. Uh, so there you go. Finally, this week, the photographer Sebastiao Salgado receives the Premium Imperial 2021 Award. He is one of four winners who won a £400,000 award that's given annually by the Japan Art Association. They actually hand out prizes in five different categories including one for painting, which is a category that Salgado won. Now, people might be scratching their head because Mm, he's not a painter. Um, And I think when you look at kind of the descriptions of of what it exists for, it's really more of a category for visual, you know, two-dimensional art. Um, Mm. And he certainly is deserving when you look at the quality of the body of his work and his dedication to the stories that he's telling. He's in good company alongside... The winners this year, James Terrell, uh, the sculptor, Australian architect, Glenn Murcutt, uh, and the musician Yo-Yo Ma, who I think more than a handful of people have heard of. Wow. Yeah, it's fantastic. Wow.
1: Yeah, that's, that's fabulous. Those are all people that I'm like, wait, they need grants? They need but yes, of course they do, because <laughs> they create amazing, amazing art that helps shape, shape the world.
0: We've talked about Silgato with some regularity on the show. And I think we mentioned in the past that he actually studied economics in college. But when I was reading his resume, his CV on uh, the <laughs> Premium Imperial website, it, it turns out he received a doctorate in economics from the University of Paris. Oh wow. And when he was traveling around, he borrowed his wife's camera. And that's how he got so hooked and then decided to make that his career.
1: Oh. If you're
0: not familiar with him... He has extensively documented the Amazon. Uh, He is Brazilian, so he's done a lot of work there with everything from indigenous tribes to gold mining. You know, we talked about his work in the gold mines in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's also helped to rebuild like an entire mountainside uh, with his own money. So I'm sure the 400,000 pounds are going to go to good good use, but... Congratulations to Salgado. Well-deserved.
1: Absolutely. His work is just fantastic. It's really inspiring. The humanitarian focus throughout his career has just been such an amazing driving purpose of his that is so clear through his work. So congrats to him.
0: Congrats, Sebastiao. That brings us to the close of another show. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, why don't you hit that subscribe button, leave us a rating or a comment. You can always tweet at us at PhotoShelter. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at PhotoShelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at PhotoShelter.com slash resources.